The Bradford Exchange presents The Classic Radio Theater with your host, Carl Amari. Countdown for blast off. X minus one. Yes, it's Maxwell House Coffee Time, starring George Burns and Gracie Allen. Richard Diamond, private detective. The Johnson Wax Program with Fibber McGee and Molly. Suspense. It's time once again for another comedy episode of Our Miss Brooks. Dragnet. We offer you escape. Kraft presents the Great Gildersleeve. Yeah. I'm that man. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. Good evening, friends of the Inner Sanctum. The Jack Benny Program. Welcome, everyone, to episode 86 of the Classic Radio Theater. Each week, the Bradford Exchange and participating sponsors bring you three hours of the Classic Radio Theater, featuring programming from the golden age of radio. This time, we'll hear two half-hour detective episodes of Philip Marlowe, starring Gerald Moore. Stick around, we'll be right back. Raymond Chandler, creator of the celebrated Philip Marlowe novels, had originally wanted to approve the scripts for the radio adaptation of his creation. After the success of the Marlowe movies, Chandler knew the detective was a surefire winner, but in the end, he had very little involvement with the radio program. Van Heflin was the first actor to portray the cynical sleuth in a series that debuted in 1947, a scheduled summer replacement for Bob Hope's radio show. Marlowe returned to the airwaves in the fall of 1948, played by Gerald Moore. The Broadway actor's baritone voice was perfect for the fictional Los Angeles detective, and Moore attempted to play him as a packed personality who would even rough up a street urchin to get information. Marlowe was a lone wolf who hired himself out to anyone seeking his services. Philip Carey played Marlowe in an ABC TV series, and Powers Booth portrayed the celebrated detective in a top-notch HBO series that ran from 1983 to 1986. Time now for the first of two detective episodes of Philip Marlowe, starring Gerald Moore. In this first one, Marlowe helps a newsboy find his missing uncle and uncovers a murder while doing it. Here's The Kid on the Corner on the adventures of Philip Marlowe from December 3rd, 1949. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gutter of the prison of the grave. This time it started with a kid hawking papers on Hollywood Boulevard and moved from there to a house full of hate on a quiet street, a blonde liar on ice skates, and a corpse in a burned-out shack. And it all wound up right where it really began, in the heart of the kid on the corner. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Kid on the Corner. After a day jam full of heat waves in December... Actresses who passed mascara in Long A's office talent. And producers with glossy convertibles and holes in their shoes. The world looked as phony as a $7 bill. 
And when I finally closed my office, stepped out onto Hollywood Boulevard into the glare from miles of sheet iron Christmas trees on lamppost trunks and watched a loud speaker, Santa Claus, with neon reindeer trundle by in a cloud of artificial snow, I'd have gladly traded all of Hollywood, California for one quiet Vermont hillside and thrown my license in to boot. All of which convinced me that what Marlowe needed most was a martini in his own apartment, a good book, and a night's sleep in that order. So I started home after them, but only got as far as the middle of the street. Hey, Mr. Marlowe, wait up. It was the kid who sold papers on the corner. Mr. Marlowe, can you spare a minute? I gotta talk to you. Okay, Tommy. Let's get out of the street first, huh? <laughs> I'm not so good at dodging fenders. Oh, yeah, sure. What's on your mind, kid? That's uh, about my Uncle Bert. Bert Larson. He, he's gone, Mr. Marlowe. What about your family, Tommy? Don't they know where he is? Oh, I don't have no family. I've been living with Uncle Bert in a flat down in Van Ness. Hey, if you haven't had your dinner yet, maybe you'd eat with me in a cafeteria, huh? It's it's real important to me, Mr. Marlowe. Anything that's important to you, kid, is important to me. Let's go in. Oh, swell. I should have known something was wrong when I heard him walking around. Late last night, you know? He said he was after a drink of water, but he's got those metal plates, kind of like taps on his shoes, so... I knew he was all dressed, only... I was too sleepy to think anything about it then. Maybe he just got an early start and he's been busy today, huh? No, it's not like that, Mr. Marlowe. Something's wrong. Well, you have, gentlemen. The park's nice tonight. Stew's the best deal for the money, Mr. Marlowe. Okay. I'll uh, have the stew, please. Yeah, you better make it too, miss. Okay, a couple of stews coming up. See, when I got up this morning, I found this envelope on the dresser. There was 200 bucks inside and this was written on the front. Huh? Let's see it. Dear Tommy, must leave town on business. I'll send more money soon. Be a good kid and take care of yourself, Uncle Bert. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. I spent all day trying to find out where he went. I checked everything but the airport. I know he wouldn't take a plane. He gets dizzy just standing on a curb. No luck, though. Milk, Mr. Marlowe? No, I'll have coffee, Tommy. I feel rugged. And there's a table over in the corner. Come on, huh? Okay. What really makes it fishy is that Uncle Bert's got no out-of-town business. Besides, he's never been out in front more than 20 bucks in his life. I can't figure it. Now, look, Tommy, if you're really worried, you don't want me. You ought to go to the police right away. Cops? Yeah. No, I can't. Why not? Well, Uncle Bert's been awful good to me, but, well, I guess he's really kind of a bum. You see, he's a gambler, Mr. Marlowe, a bookie. Uh -huh. Just a harmless small timer, sure, but I'd get him in an awful jam if I called the cops. Will you try to find him for me? I got dough. I'll pay you whatever you charge. Don't worry about the money, Tommy. I got one lead for you. This name here in the back of the envelope, see? Yeah. Lester Carney. And the number 3,004 and a half. Does that mean anything to you, kid? No. Oh. I'd have looked that guy up myself, only you know how far a kid could get. Sure. Gee, Mr. Marlowe, I'm sure my uncle didn't leave town. It's something else. It's gotta be. He's in some kind of trouble. Now, Tommy, you know that he might be on the wrong end of it, don't you? Yeah. Well, if that's right, I, I want to find it out fast, Mr. Marlowe. Here's a picture of him. Mm-hmm. Scared, son? Me scared? Nah. Not for myself, anyway. I... Yeah. Yeah, I guess I am, kind of. Well, okay, Tommy, eat your dinner, and then get back to work. I'll see what I can find out, huh? I patted my new client on the shoulder and left the cafeteria. But I was sure of one thing. The dry rot that gets to most people in Hollywood wouldn't touch a hard-working kid named Tommy Lawson. It was already smarter at 15 than a lot of citizens get at 50. 
I stopped in a phone booth and found the name Lester Carney listed in the book at 8110 Cherokee Street. That turned out to be an oversized California Spanish model that had taken lots of old-fashioned wealth to build. Halfway up the curving walk to the already open front door, I heard the voices. All right, Susan, if that's the way you feel, I don't want you in this house another night. Well, I'm sorry, Mom, but I don't think that spying and telling lies are a part of a maid's duties, so I'm leaving. But I would like to know about my back salary first, You'll Mrs. Carney. get your back salary, my girl. Don't worry about that. Now get out. Very well, Mom. Excuse me, sir. Oh, yeah, sure. Well, what do you want? I'm looking for Mr. Lester Carney. Is he in? He is not. Oh, would you mind telling me where I can locate him? I don't know. And I don't care uh, anymore. Just a minute, just a minute. Is he with Bert Lawson, maybe? I don't know what you're talking about. Now get out of here. And good night to you, too, Mrs. Carney. <laughs> hey! Hey, Susan! Just a minute, baby! And who are you calling, baby? Well, I call anybody baby when they're as cute as you are. <laughs> you're not so bad yourself. Well, now that that's established, let's get friendly. I'm always friendly. But they're not, huh? Oh, there's going to be trouble in that house. Oh? Well... Good night, Mr. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'll give you a lift in the car. <laughs> Let me have your bag. Well, all right. Thank you. Yeah. Say, uh, what about that trouble you spoke of, Susan? What did you mean? It's Mrs. Carney. Julia. Oh. She isn't as pretty as you used to be. She's turned rancid. She's driven that poor husband of hers out of his mind. He almost never comes home nowadays. Practically lives in his studio. Studio? Uh, what kind? Photography. Oh. It's way up in the Hollywood Hills someplace. Susan, did you ever hear either of them mention of Bert Lawson? No. Why, who's he? A gambler. I gather from Julia that Connie's blowing the family fortune, huh? Sure he is. And that's not all she's driven him to. No. What else? What do you think? Another woman, of course. Oh. An ice skater named Carol King at the Igloo. That's that nightclub with the skating show? Yeah, I've been there. Does Mrs. Connie know? Oh, she suspects. That's why she wanted me to spy on him. But I wouldn't because I don't blame him one bit. Not with Julia being like she is. Yeah, maybe you're right, Susan. But then again, maybe you've got your cause and effect backward, huh? Yes? Well, I don't know anything about that. But that poor man's been driven so crazy, he's threatened to kill her. Well, here's where I get out. And stay out. I dropped Susan off at the car stop and headed out Sunset Boulevard for Westwood in a club called the Igloo, which looked more like a down-at-the-heel Taj Mahal than an Eskimo's bedroom. Inside a line of fast-moving ostrich plumes with rye-crisp waistlines and imitation sable zipped over a short sheet of tinted ice toward the climax of chorus numbers, while I bluffed my way backstage and intimidated the callboy into sending over one Carol King. She turned out to be left in in the lineup out front, so I sat down on a cold trunk and waited until the curtain fell. And I got up to greet an athletic blonde with more than healthy face, who sidled dubiously toward me, ice skates and all, and I introduced myself and told her I was looking for Bert Larson. Why are you looking for Bert Larson, Marlowe? Well, because people say he's disappeared. Now, I know he's a bookie. You don't have to protect him on that score, and I'm no cop. Just want to know where he's gone. Okay. Here he made a real killing yesterday, the first one in his life. Oh. I understand he's leaving town to retire. Hmm. Who's going to make book for you from now on? Nobody. I never play the horses. My friends do. Oh, friends like Lester Carney? Lester. <laughs> well, now we get down to business. You smell like you're working for a wife, Shamus. Guess again, sugar. I'm after Bert Larson, nothing else. That's why I want to talk to your friend. Where is he? Lester Carney is no friend of mine. 
You know, you should be smart enough to know you're just wasting your time with that pitch. Look, bud, he was my friend, sure, but that's all off, as of an hour ago. They're all through, washed up. I gave him the boot. Why, did he run out of blank checks? I ought to bust your shin uh, wide I'll open, I'll keep those skates on the floor, honey. Then skip the cracks. I threw him out because I got sick and tired of waiting. He's kept me on the string for months with nothing but promises. Said he hated his wife, but when it comes down to cases, he refused to leave her. Why? I don't know. Got some hold over him, he has nerve enough to break. So I wrapped him up in a neat little bundle and sent him home. It was a mess. I'll bet. Between you and Julia, he must be in a great frame of mind tonight. That's his problem now, brother, not mine. What is yours? How to keep your life on ice? No, wise guy. For your information, I'm quitting this show. I'm gonna make a clean break all around. Happy landings. But look, what's the connection, if any, between Lawson and Carney? Why, Mr. Marlowe, I have no, no idea. idea. Isn't that wonderful? Okay, sugar, that's where we'll leave it for now. But in making that clean break, be sure it's not your neck. I'll see you around. I had nothing tangible to base it on, but as I left the igloo and drove back to Hollywood for some reason, I kept thinking that Tommy Lawson was right, that his uncle was still in town and in some kind of trouble. And I was sure that at least half of Carol King's story had been lies, but why I couldn't forgive. And another idea hit me and hit me hard. I turned onto Cherokee again and drove up to Carney's house at 8110, parked and went in. There the vague hunch began to shape up like grim fact because the front door was wide open and spilling a pale glow from the one light in the house, the hall lamp. I saw the note propped under the lamp even before I went in. I left it where it was. It said, to whom it may concern, I have paid all my just debts, my affairs are in order, and since life has been made intolerable for me, I have destroyed that which made it so, my wife, Julia. Now there's nothing left, I shall dispose of myself, nor am I sorry, Lester Carney. And I looked up beyond the note and saw her lying at the edge of the circle of light from the lamp. Julia had been strangled by a silk cord that was still embedded in her swollen throat. I turned and started for the phone. There we are. Oh. So I got here a little too late, huh? Or is it too soon? My wife's dead, so what's the difference? Better stand still because I'll shoot fast. Who are you and what are you doing here? Name's Marlowe, and I assume you're Connie. All right, I'm a private detective trying to find Bert Larson. In the process, I got mixed up in your little fiasco from one end to the other. Bert Larson. Just a cheap bookmaker. He's one of the very few people who ever gave me a fair break. Where is he, Connie? Do you know? No. Does it matter? Too bad you bunted in here just now. The man's going to do what I've decided to do. It's a most personal, private affair. It's your party. But maybe you better think it all over again, huh? I've already thought it over. Thoroughly. Turn around and walk through that door to the kitchen. Go on. Sure, sure. All right. Stop there. Now, open that door on your right. This one? Yes. Years ago, that cellar was filled with the best wines the world had to offer. What happens? You pull too many corks? Find out for yourself, Marlowe! Oh! In just a moment, the second act of Philip Marlowe. But first... Will Tyrone Power listen to Jack Benny's siren song? 
Will Ty consent to portray CBS's great Sunday night musician and lover in the movie The Life of Jack Betty? Tune in tomorrow and find out. No, there's never a question about the quality and quantity of comedy and sheer entertainment on CBS on Sunday night. And remember, the Jack Benny Show is heard on all of these CBS stations. Now with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Kid on the Corner. Lester Carney, bouncing the private detective down the cellar stairs, had been rough on both the inner and outer man, and my jaw was bleeding where his heavy signet ring had connected. And I was back on my feet through the dusty jumble of barrels and boxes over to a grimy side window, and finally, out onto the street, I found neither confessed killer nor car any place in sight, which made my next step a return trip into the house and a call to Lieutenant Matthews. All right, Marlowe. From your client to Julia Carney to that ice skater and back to Julia Carney, now dead, I follow. But the why, I don't. Where's the connection between the newsboy's uncle and this guy you say is on the way out? This, uh... Lester Carney, Matthews, I don't know. You don't know? You're not saying which, Phil? Well, maybe it's a little of each. Now, look, Lieutenant, I... Just a second. What is it, Marlowe? Hold the wire, will you, Matthews? Okay, but make it snappy, will you, Phil? Killer on the loose isn't such a good idea, even if he's promised to knock himself off. Might decide to take somebody else along. Three thousand know, four and a half North what? Westmore. Three thousand four and a half. I can't hear you, Phil. What? What? Oh, a, a piece of paper, Matthews, in a dead woman's hand. Oh, now you're fine. It's got an address on it. The same address that was on the back of the envelope Tommy's uncle left for him. Well, this address could be the connection I asked you about. Yeah. Yeah, the hook between Uncle Bert and the Connie's. Well, we'll get right over there. We'll uh, Matthews, wait a minute. Let me try it alone first, will you? I, I think it's it'll play better that way. And keep the kid's uncle out of the police lineup that yeah. way. Uh-uh, Marlo, I can't. Oh, now, wait a minute, Matthews, please. I'm thinking of the kid. Yeah, well, I'm... Okay. That a boy. Just don't make it too long till I hear from you again. Goodbye. I knew that the 3,000 block on North Rossmore wasn't even close to the Hollywood Hills, which meant that the address couldn't be the dilettante photographer's studio that the Carney's ex-maid had described. And 20 minutes later, when I was out of my car and standing next to the doorbell marked 3,004 and a half, I knew something else. Because the name underneath was Carol King. A light showed from someplace deep inside, and my leaning on the doorbell only proved that it worked. There was no answer at 3,004 and a half, but 3,004, the other twin to the duplex, was different. It featured a sweet old lady who shattered the illusion the second she opened her mouth. I suppose you're just another one of that King girl's friends, eh? Why, do I look the type, Granny? There is no type, young man. Miss Carol King entertains all sorts. Oh, which might include a recent someone who's gray at the temple, short, and maybe talks a lot about the ponies? Huh? How would I know what her guests talk about? Oh, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> look, honey, a woman's been murdered tonight. And that murdered? Ha- uh... I knew it. I knew it. No, she had to come to a bad wait end. Minute, well, only yesterday Whoa, I told him that if that Hold it, Granny. Not... Carol is not the one who's dead. Oh. Yeah. Well, I'm glad. Sticks out all over you. Now, look, what about that man? Well, he was here about 30 minutes ago, just the two of them drinking that hard liquor like it was water and making enough noise to raise the devil itself. A farewell party, they called it. Oh. Did you see him leave? No, no. Henry made me come in then, and I... Well, I mean... (laughs) Yeah, I know what you mean. You missed it. Okay, Granny, now, look, how do we get in here without kicking the door down? Come on, sweetheart, it's important there may be a body inside. Uh, uh, body? Oh, well, how awful. Here, here. Over here, behind this ledge. That's better. She always kept a spare key. Yes, yes, here it is. But, uh, you do it. I'm too shaky. You shouldn't be. Just think of tomorrow, Granny, and the news you'll have for one and all. 
The light switches is on your right there. Uh-huh. See anything? No. How many rooms here? Bedroom, kitchen, and bath, aside from this. Anything in there? No. You suspect foul play, all right, don't you? The foulest. Don't let it worry you, because... Hey, those photos there on the wall. They're taken from Mulholland Drive, aren't they? One by day, one by night, both in the same spot, the Hollywood Hills? Sure, sure. That's where he has a studio, that Lester fella. Yeah, that Lester fella. Granny, do you know where it is? I mean, Mulholland Drive and where? You know, that street runs for miles along the top of the mountain. Well, of course I do. I was born and raised here in Los Angeles. Granny, where? Mulholland and where? Mulholland, Laurel Canyon Boulevard, just Ah. south of the intersection. Thank you, sweetheart, and goodbye. Oh, wait, one moment now, if you please. What's the matter? What's your name, officer? I know my rights. Your name and your division. Granny, dear, I'm no cop. Huh? I said I'm no cop. Oh, not a police officer. Well, then who are you? Just a passerby. A stranger in the night. Good night, Granny. All the way from Rossmore to Sunset, then west to Laurel Canyon Boulevard, I kept worrying about Tommy Lawson and the uncle, who from where I stood needed at least worrying about no matter which way things played. But when I was on the strip of macadam that twists its way upward toward Mulholland Drive like a snake writhing from a long, long bellyache, I forgot about both client and relatives alike. Because at the top and a little to the south, where Granny had said it would be, was Lester Carney's studio, all right, but burned to the ground. Well, he select my witch point. Sure go fast, huh, Chief? Yeah, wasn't 20 minutes on this one. Hey, mister, where are you going? Some of that metal stuff's still pretty hot. Who are you, with the law? No, Chief, I'm a private detective named Marlowe. I was wondering if Lester Carney was caught in there. He owned this shack. Yeah, I know. Was he a friend of yours? Uh, no, it's strictly business. He's wanted for murder. Yeah, he was wanted for murder, Phil. He was burned to a crisp in there. Hello, Casey. Hello, Matthews. Well, what's your guess? He started on purpose? Oh, uh, suicides hardly ever burn themselves to death. No, no. He probably took some sleeping pills or poison and then a cigarette he left going did this, you know? Hey, by the way, Phil, you saw Connie tonight. You think you might recognize him? Might. Yeah, he's over there. There isn't much. Oh, see you, Casey. Right, Matthews. Hey, Garson. Hey, you tied Connie and this fire together kind of fast, didn't you, Lieutenant? <laughs> I just found out about this place. Yeah, but you work alone, Marlowe. I got help. Oh. Oh, there it is. All that's left. See anything? Yeah. That ring. I noticed it earlier tonight. Uh-huh. And the watch? No, I'm not sure. I don't remember what kind of... Hey, Matthews. What is it? What are you staring at, Phil? Come on over here. Come you on. See this little piece of metal? Yeah. I think it's... Don't watch you. Phil, you know fire makes things hot? Yeah, yeah. Hot things burn and... Marlo, what is it? It's an idea. Yeah, like what? Like this isn't suicide after all, like it's murder, Matthews. Come on, we gotta get to our phone quick. International Airport, Central Dispatcher's Office. Uh, look, miss, this is important. I'm calling for Detective Lieutenant Matthews at police headquarters. What passenger flights have left in the last half hour? Passenger flights? Yeah. Well, there have been two, sir. One to Dallas, Texas, the other to Chicago. Uh, both American Airlines. Nothing out of the country? Well, what are you getting? Will you wait a minute, no, Matthews? Sir. However, there is a flight scheduled to leave at 1010. Uh-huh. That's just five minutes from now. Uh, that's going to Manila. Mm. Mercury Airways. Shall I connect you? Yeah, hurry, will you please? Yes, hey, Matthews, sir. this may be it. I'm glad for you. Mercury Airways. 
Central Dispatcher's office, Mercury. There's a call from the police here for you. Uh, go ahead, sir. Look, your 1010 flight from Manila, is it going out on schedule? Uh, yes, sir. The plane's standing by for the tower signal now. Oh, then tell me this. Is there a passenger aboard named Bert Larson? Uh, Larson? He's one the moment, killer, please, killer? sir. Hurry, will you? This Larson killed Lester Connie, then he's Will you the hold one it, Matthews? That. Yes, sir. We have a Bert Larson aboard. Oh, good. Keep him there and don't let that plane get up in the air. Do you hear? The man's wanted for murder. But don't do anything else either. Just let him sit and wait for us. You got that? Uh, yes, sir. I understand. Fine. We'll be there as soon as we can. Goodbye. Come on, Matthews. It's your show from here on in. Sirens included. Okay, Marlowe. Okay, enough. So we're on our way to the airport. We're going to catch her. Kill everything is great. But first, how do things add up? Yes! Mooney, take it easy. Five seconds, more or less, never yet turn the trick. Okay, Lieutenant, Were you saying something, Matthews? Yeah, yeah, I'm saying I don't know which end is up, Phil. Look, Lester Connie killed his wife, right? Right. Why? Because he wanted her out of the way so that he and a cheap little monster named Carol King can live happily ever after. Oh, divorce wouldn't do that for him, huh? No, Mooney! No, I don't think so. Probably because Julia Connie had a real tight grip on the purse strings. Oh. Maybe something more, like it's not very nice pass for a guest. Yeah, yeah, but the purse strings, the money, that's where Bert Lawson figures in, huh? A bookie with a claim. No, no, blackmail. Now, I figure Bert Lawson knew about Connie and Carol King. He must have stopped by once to pick up or pay off a bet at the right time. Yeah, and from there, what? And from there, the team of Carol and Lester kill Lester's wife. Yeah, which we've covered. But not in detail. Now, listen. You see, after the murder, Lester planned to kill himself. Yeah. Or at least make it look like that. Yeah. A suicide note, the Mulholland studio burned down the works. Yeah, yeah, and the body we found... That's an added attraction. Bert Larson included in the last minute. What? The wife and then the blackmailer? Ah, you're getting it. Drugged while drinking at Carol's, where he thought that he was going to get paid off in money, then up to Mulholland Drive, ring watch and flames added. Oh, and then then out here at the airport headed for Manila. Lester Carney. Uh-huh. Hey, Mooney... We're getting close. You better kill the siren. Okay, Marlon. Now, Phil, how do you know all this? I mean, the switch. You know, what makes it so? That piece of metal I burned my fingers on, Matthews, yeah. it was a tap from a shoe. And Bert Larson wore taps. The rest of it adds from there. Yeah, including Connie at the airport now as Larson. Sure. Who'd be uh, looking for a beat-up second-rate bookie who decided to leave town? Aside from a nephew, that is. Yeah, aside from a nephew who tried every place but the airport. Uncle Bert couldn't stand planes. The brakes, Matthews. Oh, here we are. Yeah, just you and me and Mooney and a killer. Aren't you coming, Phil? Uh, no, I think I'll wait here, Matthews. I, I, I got some thinking to do. About the scum you sometimes meet in the night? No. Not the kind of a kid I almost never meet in the night. See it. Yeah. All right, come on, Mooney. Maybe our boy will make a break for it, I hope. <laughs> Lester Connie didn't make a break for it, and an hour later when they picked up Carol King, it was the same thing. Each of them was surly, ugly, but they talked. So when I finally left police headquarters, where try as he would for Tommy's sake, Matthews had found it impossible to skip over Bert Larson's connection as a blackmailer. It was pushing midnight, and I was dog-tired. There was something worse than that when I was back on the corner near my office, walking toward Tommy Larson, who was untying a stack of fresh newspapers. Then the headline. Read all about it. Hollywood killer nab. Blackmailing bookie. Jealous wife slain. Hiya, kid. Hiya, Mr. Marlowe. Lieutenant Matthews tells me you had kind of a rough night. Kinda? When'd you talk to him, Tommy? 
After the first editions hit the street, I... I wanted to know if you were okay. The story didn't say. Pub... Publicity no good for your business, huh? Not much. Look, kid, did the lieutenant say anything about you? I mean... Oh, uh... I'm gonna stay with a neighbor. A friend of Uncle Bert's. Uh... He had friends, you know. He wasn't really bad at heart, Mr. Marlowe. Not really. I I believe that. So do I, Tommy. He was just mixed up. Yeah. Sure he was. And you know why? The way he thought the world owed him a living, that's why. And I couldn't tell him otherwise. He... <laughs> Excuse me, Mr. Marlowe. I, I gotta get going. Thanks a lot. You were swell. Sure. Extry! Extry! Bookie and Babe slain in Hollywood Triangle! Two dead in Hollywood slaying! Extra! 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 nothing more pathetic than a kid, the first time he's really slapped down by life. We, the older ones, the tired ones, learn to roll with a punch. Because we've got time in our corner, watching us, counseling us, teaching us how to save ourselves, so that the final gong, we're still on our feet. But a kid... A kid steps into life's arena expecting to find his opponents all he was taught to believe they would be. But instead he finds the old one-two below the belt. But if here he finds a good guy, and there a great girl, the going suddenly becomes not so rough. The fight becomes worth it. If only to help the next generation of Tommies find their ring a little cleaner. And the brakes, not quite so tough. Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character, star Gerald Moore, and are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Robert Mitchell and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Gil Stratton, Jr., Virginia Gregg, Wilms Herbert, Joan Banks, and Vivi Janis. Detective Lieutenant Matthews is played by Larry Dobkin. The special music is composed and conducted by Richard Orant. <laughs> Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... It started with laughter on a bright morning, in a battle over a chicken, and got better as it went along. It could have lasted a lifetime, but it didn't. It stopped on a gray morning, with a little wishbone broken. Stay tuned now for Gangbusters, which follows immediately on most of these same CBS stations. This is Roy Rowan speaking.
This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. And that's The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, starring Gerald Moore in The Kid on the Corner, from December 3rd, 1949. Also in the cast, Gil Stratton, Joan Banks, Lawrence Dobkin, Virginia Gregg, Vivi Janice, and Wilms Herbert, as heard over CBS. All of the classic radio shows we present on this series are direct from the master recordings. I have more than 100,000 original radio episodes under license from the owners and estates, and we make them available via digital download or on CD through our Classic Radio Club. By joining the Classic Radio Club, you'll receive 10 superior-sounding classic radio shows sent directly to you each month, along with detailed liner notes and photos of the stars. You'll receive your first 10 classic radio episodes for only $1, and you can cancel at any time. To learn more about the Classic Radio Club, log on to ClassicRadioClub.com. That's ClassicRadioClub.com. I'll have another detective episode of The Adventures of Philip Marlowe after this short break. Welcome back to the Classic Radio Theater. I'm your host, Carl Amari. This time, Marlowe meets a pistol-packing mama who happens to be a champion sharpshooter and solves a murder. Here's the hairpin turn on The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, starring Gerald Moore, from January 28, 1950. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gutter of the prison of the grave. This time, a fireball, too handy with a target pistol, led me down a rocky road past a sleazy money grubber to a curly-headed corpse. And it might have gotten worse if I hadn't slowed down at the hairpin turn. It happened like this. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Hairpin Turn. Hey, stop it. Put down that gun and listen to me. Stay back, ugly knock. How do you like that? Well, if you could think just half as straight as you could shoot, I'd have nothing to worry about, but you can't. And it's high time you realize that the... Oh, there's the house buzzer. Somebody's up at the house, Uncle Enoch. And this is Miles Knight. Oh. Well, all right, I'll answer it. I'm expecting a man from the office. But as soon as I finish with him, you and I are going to have a talk, young lady. Do you understand? I said... Oh, what's the use? Yes? Uh, I'm Philip Marlowe to see Mr. Vanneman, Enoch Vanneman. I, I have an appointment. Oh, come in, Marlowe. I'm Enoch Vanneman. Oh. Glad you're here. Step this way, will you? We'll talk in the study. Okay, Mr. Vanneman. I, uh, I, I thought... Uh, those, uh, those were pistol shots? Yeah, that's, uh, Kay, my niece. Sounds like a squad of Marines. Yeah, she's a champion pistol shot. She's converted one of the garages into a target range. Well, I seem to recall a city ordinance that yeah, says... I that know you... all about that ordinance, Mr. Marlowe. Save your breath. 
Oh, just like that. Huh? Precisely. Mm. Sit down, please. Thanks. Breaking a city ordinance is a perfect example of all the crackpot things that headstrong young fool insists on getting mixed up in. And you want me to get mixed up with the crackpot, huh? Yeah, she has no more sense in her choice of male companions than she does in her hobbies. And she's a very rich girl. Now, look, if this is a bodyguarding assignment, Mr. Vanneman, I now, want to tell Hay you... Hay has been going with a man named Cliff Lace, an unsavory type at least. Professional horse player, I think, and it was quite an affair. Was quite an affair? That's right. She threw Lace over for a new love recently. Fellow I've never met. Mm. She's serious, but refuses to tell me anything about him. So? So Cliff Lace doesn't like the idea because, from his standpoint, a very good thing has slipped through his fingers. Oh. He's going to do something about it, huh? And I don't know. But since about the time they broke up, a man's been snooping around the grounds here, Marlowe. Really? He's about 40, uh, short, greasy-looking. He has a flabby kind of face with fat lips and there was a large black mole on the right side of his nose. Hey, I may know that character, Mr. Vanneman. I'll have to check to be sure. Morrow, I want to know who he is and why he's been hanging around here. Also, I want to find out all there is to know about Kay's new man. Mm. Tell me, uh, how old is Kay, Mr. Vanneman? She's 26. That's her picture there. Oh, oh yeah. Blonde fireball. <laughs> Look, uh, Mr. Vanneman, if she's 26, maybe her love life is none of your business. It is my business. I'm her guardian and I'm very fond of her. But she's reckless, stubborn, and erratic. Yeah, well, money's great, but it'll never replace the old-fashioned parent. Well, it's also a big responsibility, you know. No, not firsthand, I don't. It leaves one open to every crooked scheme in the book. Here, look, Marlowe. I've written my personal phone number on this card. You can reach me there privately at any time. All right, Mr. Vanneman, I'll see what I can find out. I got in my car and I crossed the two acres of tailored flora the Vanneman's called Front Yard. I could see in back the squat, windowless brick building topped by a skylight that housed the target range. Then a minute later, I drove out through the big Bel Air gate into Sunset Boulevard just as Kay Vanneman streaked past me in a sleek new Nash. I was sure I knew already who the snoopy little man who'd been hanging around was. The description of flabby face, fat lips, and mole fit tight on a guy named Mutt Pomeroy, who'd somehow been issued a private detective's license and somehow managed to keep it. He was just about as ethical as a stab in the back. I remembered he had an office in a fire trap on Bronson, so I made that my first stop. Climbed a flight of dark, smelly stairs to a tired door marked Pomeroy, Private Investigations. Well, there was no answer, so I tried the door. Somebody beside Mutt had been there ahead of me. Turned the place inside out. It was a shambles. I spent five minutes going over his files, scattered like leaves in November... And was still at it when the door behind me swung shut. Lose something, chum? Hello, Mutt. What's the big idea tearing up my joint, Marlowe? Hey, hey, you know better than that. I wouldn't touch the stuff you keep on file without rubber gloves. <laughs> Real funny. If you didn't do this, then who did? I came in and found it just like this. One of your clients must have gotten a little careless. You're full of them tonight, aren't you? Yeah. What do you want here, Marlowe? I need a little help, Mutt. No kidding. Hmm. <laughs> Okay, chum, sit down. Glad to help out a brother sleuth any time at all. Now, what's your problem? Why are you so interested in the Vanneman place? Oh, the Vanneman place? Yeah. Huh? <laughs> Quite a chunk of real estate they got there. I know. What's the fascination? A little simple investigation for a simple little lady. For purposes of conversation, what'll we call her? Mm. How does Estelle suit you? Stone. Look, Marlo, you got in free. Take the scraps and be happy. Okay. 
But as you put it, the Vannemans own quite a chunk of real estate. We might subdivide. You might like to tell me how this Estelle ties in. Yeah, yeah, I might at that, chum. She's worried about a guy. And from what I've seen of that jet-propelled blonde named Kay Vanneman, she's got plenty of reason to worry. Guy's name wouldn't be Cliff Lace, would it? Cliff Lace? Mm-hmm. Mm. I don't remember, Marlowe. Okay, Mud. how much is it going to take? Well, now, that's hard to say. I'll have to let you know. You see, I've got an angle on my end, too. My uh, little client swears up and down there's no other woman involved. But, you know, the Estelles are always the last to know. You're beginning to smell, Pomeroy. And just how do you fit, Marlowe? I'm helping a guy worry about a girl. Well, that's real nice. And when your clients worry, the wrinkles make dollar signs, so you're always right, is that it? Thanks for everything. I'll see you around, Mutt. Yeah, but you don't go away mad, chum. Oh, of course not. That's why I'm leaving now. It took a friend at the phone company all of ten minutes to locate Cliff Lace's address for me, which turned out to be a snug bachelor's nest bungalow style at the foot of the Hollywood Hills, numbered 4300 Cherimoya. I parked, started for the front door, and on the way, passed an open window where the silhouette of a man at a telephone was cut into neat slices by a Venetian blind. Oh, but you better want But his voice came through in one piece, yeah. and you couldn't miss it. You see, Estelle, I know almost all about you. Oh, yeah, yeah. I got your name earlier tonight from a mutual friend... Mr. Mutt Pomeroy. Yeah. I think it's about time we got together for a little business conference, huh? Now, right there at the plaza in, say, two hours. Uh, you'll still be registered as Ruth Bridges. Good. Goodbye, Estelle. When he hung up, he moved over to a bottle of Johnny Walker scotch. I waited until he'd helped himself, and then I went to the door. Yeah. My name's Marlowe, Mr. Lace. I'd like to talk to you. What about? Whatever it was you were looking for when you ransacked Mutt Pomeroy's office tonight. Do I come in? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Thanks. But I'm afraid I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, come on. We both know that's a lie. Let's forget it and go on from there, huh? Just a minute. You a cop? No. But I'll call him at the drop of a hat. Make it easy on yourself. Shit. What's Mutt Pomeroy to you? Bag of worms. I want to know who he's working for. The fact that you had to break into his place to get information should let you out, so who is it? What makes you think I'd know? Because you found what you were looking for. What's Estelle's last name, Cliff? <laughs> you do get around, don't you, Brightboy? Yeah, yeah, I do. Only sometimes not fast enough. Look, Buster, why not chance at the door? Somebody's got his finger caught in the buzzer. Yeah, that's right. Okay, I told you I didn't... I stopped by to deliver something, Cliff, an ultimatum. I'm telling you for the last hold time... Hold it, hold it, will you? We're not alone. I don't care what I have to say to you. I'll shout from the rooftops. We're through, washed up. Now get out of my life and stay out. Okay, please. Good evening, Miss Vanneman. I don't know you, Slim, but keep out of this. Look, look, darling, don't... Now you listen. I'm in love with boys Neely. Really in love this time. I intend to marry him, and I won't have you... Marry boys Neely? <laughs> oh, don't be ridiculous. Cliff, I'm warning you. Look, you'll get this. You'll never marry boys Neely. That's one thing I'm sure of. I know a lot more about him than you do, darling. Believe me, when the time is just right, you're going to hear from me again, but loud. Why, you filthy. If you try to do anything to hurt Boyce and me, Cliff Lacer, help me, I'll kill you. I mean it. <laughs> Sometimes she's going to throw that temper at me just once too often. Who are you kidding, Lace? 
Ever see her use a target pistol? Ah, oh, she's too smart to trump her own ace. Don't count on it, mister. No, I'm not worried. Uh, where were we, Marlow? We were looking for some answers, which I just got. <laughs> Good night, Lace. Keep your head down. The way things were breaking, I was sure if I didn't get to the woman named Estelle before Lace did, I wasn't going to get anywhere. So I spent the next hour folded up in a phone booth running down the list of respectable and semi-so hotels with the word plaza either for or aft. Finally, a flute-voiced night clerk in a mid-Victorian number called the Royce Plaza confessed that they had a Ruth Bridges, which was the name that I'd heard Lace mention. She was registered from Santa Monica, but at the moment out, I was convinced that she was really Estelle, Mutt Pomeroy's client. So I drove over to the hotel, invested five bucks with a night clerk, picked up a newspaper, and waited Halfway down the sports page, a prim brunette came in who would have been pretty without the overload of nervous strain stamped on her face. As she crossed the deserted lobby, the clerk gave me a nod, so I called her name, caught up with her at the foot of the stairs. You... you called me? Yeah, if you could spare me a minute, Miss Bridges, I'd like to talk to you. What do you want? Well, my name's Marlowe. I'm a private detective. Uh, uh, a private detective? Yeah, look, honey, let's move over into the corner. You know, that boy on the desk is going to sprain his neck if we don't... But what do you want with me? Well, suppose we start off with your real name, Estelle. What's the rest of it? Neely, maybe, huh? How did you know that? It's taken me all evening to get it. That's the only way it figures. It's right, isn't it? You're married to Boyce Neely? Yes. Mm -hmm. I'm Mrs. Boyce Neely, but what business is that of yours? Well, that's what I'm trying to find out. You hired Mutt Pomeroy to check on your husband because you're worried about him, right? Why? Boyce is in trouble. He, well, he's in a jam, that's all. Is it money? No, Boyce does very well. He's in real estate in Santa Monica. Oh, maybe with the law, huh? Yes. Yes, I'm afraid so. He, he's he been acting so strange. He, he wouldn't talk to me or anything. I just had to find out what was wrong. I see. Well, look, what's your connection with Cliff Lace? Why, I, I don't know any Cliff Lace. Oh, come on, baby. Take it a little easier and try again. Cliff Lace, I know you called him tonight, and he called you. All right. He... He wanted to talk to me about, about Boyce and, and some girl named Kay Vanneman, but he's crazy. I know he is. Boyce is not mixed up with another woman. He couldn't be. I hope I meet your husband soon, Mrs. Neely. I'd like to punch him in the nose. What do you mean? But Pomeroy was right. The Estelles are always the last to know. Look, do me a favor. Will you go up to your room, go to bed, and get some sleep? You're going to need it. All right. Thank you, Mr. Marlowe. Mm. Hey, uh, Buster, where's the phone? Oh, right over there, sir. Good book? Uh -huh. Huh? Oh, yeah, yeah, great. Chandler's new one, you know. Chandler. Chandler. <laughs> Where have I heard that name before? Hello? Enoch Vanneman? Marlowe, Mr. Vanneman. Kay there? No, she's not, Marlowe. Uh -huh. And listen... I want you to forget whatever else you're doing and find her immediately. Well, what's the matter? She left here about 15 minutes ago in a fury. Where was she going? I don't know for sure. She left shortly after you did tonight. Then she came back about an hour I ago. I know, I know. I ran into her. What happened this time? She got a phone call from Cliff Lace. Something was said about him now being in the driver's seat, whatever that means. She was furious. That's not good, Vanneman. Believe me. Well, it's worse than you think. You've got to stop her. Because when she left here, Marlowe, I'm quite sure she had her target pistol with her. I hung up the phone, ran out to my car, and headed back to Cliff Lace's bungalow on Cheramoya. 
But Kay had a 15-minute head start, and at that hour, in her frame of mind, the drive-in from Bel Air was a hop, skip, and a jump. The only hope was in Lace himself, being smart enough to know that he'd overplayed his hand. The street was deserted when I pulled in and parked down the hill from the place. When I got to the front door and found it unlocked, I eased it open and went in. The living room was dark, but there was a light on in the bedroom, and I started for it. Before I saw the bulk of a figure leaning against the dark side of the frame. Come on in, chum. Make yourself at home. What are you doing here, Mutt? Easy, Marlowe. There's no hurry. Not now, there's not. School's out, chum. Where's Lace? Inside. It was nice, clean, accurate, and exactly dead center. He never knew what hit him. In just a moment, the second act of Philip Marlowe. But first, for a moment, let's look at the headlines on CBS's entertainment for tomorrow night. First, east is east and west is west. So, Jack Benny, on his way to New York, hasn't yet heard that the subway fare is a dime. Second, Charlie McCarthy, already in New York, rewrites Henry Fonda's tough-talking Navy officer in Mr. Roberts. And third, Andy of Amos and Andy, released from Bale, Jail, and Abigail, gets into new hot water. Besides these, you'll also find headliners Eve Arden, Red Skelton, Horace Height, and all the other great Sunday night shows on most of these same CBS stations tomorrow night. Now with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Hairpin Turn. small, neat hole front and center at his forehead said that Cliff Lace had been shot to death. And everything from jealous motive to target pistol method pointed directly to Kay Vanneman. But that was still a long way from proof, and there was Mutt Pomeroy on hand. The kind who always figured only one way. To the right of the dollar sign. Now, let's not jump to any dumb conclusions, Marlowe. Like what? Like the look on your kisser that wants to know what I'm doing here. That I can explain. I got Cliff Lace's name from you, and a sawbuck to the right guy gave me a rundown on him, a sort of a character analysis, you might say. So? So I figured he was the guy who frisked my office to find out who I was working for. He must have tagged me out of the Vanderman place, followed me down to my joint, then turned everything inside out until he ran across something that added for him. Something like the name is Tell Neely, maybe? <laughs> you move fast, don't you, Marlowe? Yeah, when there isn't too much crowding. I've got most of it already, Pomeroy, so Spill? Spill? I don't know what you mean, Marlowe. I mean that Estelle Neely hired you to find out why her husband was worried. You come up with an answer, all right. It was called Other Woman. So? Estelle didn't even suspect anything about another woman. And you didn't tell her what you found out because it was Kay Vanneman, a gal with a million bucks, right or wrong. Suppose you're right, Marlowe. What are you getting at? A possibility that you could have done this. Kill Lace? Why? Because Lace was playing the same game that you are, chum, blackmail. Your motive was money and so was his. Plus the fact that he didn't like Kay giving him his walking papers. So when he wouldn't come to terms with me, I killed him, is that it? Yeah, it could be. Can you prove otherwise? <laughs> no, I can't. But other things can, Marlowe. Things, yeah. Like that lipstick-smeared cigarette in the ashtray behind you. It's not my brand. And I don't drop hairpins on the carpet when I kill. Do I go on? Or are you just trying it for size because you hate to think that a gorgeous item like young money bags could be it? <laughs> Right or wrong, Marlowe? You know, leveling with you, Pomeroy, takes the kind of talent that can cash a $7 bill at a bank. Who are you calling, Marlowe? The cops. It's the custom. 
wait, wait. Look, don't be a sap. What'll that get you? A killer, maybe. Yeah, and from there on, a pat on the head. A well done from the law. Get smart, chum. Shielding a murderer is a lot healthier for the bank account than nailing one every time. Get your hand off the phone. Now, Marlo, listen. Get it off! Okay, go on. Louse it up, boy scout. Who knows, maybe some bright day you might even run for alderman, Marlowe. Without your votes, I'm sure. Homicide, Sergeant Becker. Phil Marlowe, Sarge. is a DOA waiting for you. 4300 Cherimoya. Name's Cliff Lace. Occupation questionable. He was shot. Any idea who did it, Marlowe? Yeah. Poor little rich girl named Kay Vanneman or her sweetheart, one Mr. Boyce Neely. Who lives in Santa Monica? Yeah. Where's the fit? I don't know. How long ago was this lace killed, Marlowe? 30, 40 minutes? Why? Neely's clear. We picked him up at his own home better than two hours ago. He's in a pokey now. What'd you get him on? Hit and run, a month ago. It's alleged that he knocks an old lady out of a crosswalk and into a hospital without even stopping to watch her bounce. Some anonymous tipster phoned the dope in around six tonight. Said the repaint job on Neely's car would prove it. It did. So that just leaves this venomous babe, huh? Yeah, I guess so. But you know, Becker, hey, there's... Hey, come here, quick, out in the backyard there. It's Kay Vanderman. I'll call you later, Becker. We got company. Get the lights, Pomeroy, and stay down. Don't worry, Marlowe. The driveway alongside the house is the only way out. All right, watch it from the front. I'll go through the kitchen and out the back door. Play it close. Check. But remember, Pomeroy, nobody gets trigger happy. Don't worry, chum. Hey, Come on, baby, you're cornered back there. Talk up. Who's that? Philip Marlowe, the guy you saw here with Cliff Lace earlier tonight. I'm also a private detective who's working for your uncle and trying to keep you out of trouble. Now, let's have the target pistol, baby. Come on, throw it in. I can't. I don't have one. Uncle Enoch says different. He told me you left the house with it. I told you I don't have one. All right, come on out. But slowly, hands high, no jokes. I always lose my sense of humor right after murder. After... Yeah, yeah. Lace was shot to death. Never mind the carefully arched eyebrows. You're in too deep, honey. You don't think I had anything to do with Cliff Lace getting killed, do you? Oh, no, no. It's all one great big coincidence, huh? Why don't you leave, Miss Vanderman? I... I said, why don't you leave? Well, I... how about it, Mr. Marlowe? Go ahead. I won't try to stop you. If you're guilty, you won't get very far. Well, all right. All right, Pomeroy, what's on your mind? A partnership, chum. Based on what, chum? Based on the fact that I saw you kill Cliff Lace. Fact? You what? Yeah. I saw you standing over the body with a smoking gun. Come on, come on. You don't think you can really make that stick, do you? No, but it would keep you busy explaining for a while, long enough for me to wind up my business. Oh. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, Marlowe, what'll it be? You and me as partners doing business with old Enoch Vanneman on behalf of the niece I'm sure he'll want to protect, or me in business for myself. Well, which? It'll be partners, Pomeroy. <laughs> okay, chum. Let's get inside and clean up. Mm. The lady was kind of careless around the edges. Hey, hey, the split. Hmm? How far does it go? Mm. 50-50. Fair enough? Fair enough. <clears throat> After you, Phil. Now get that cigarette butt and the hairpin on the copper there. Then tell Sergeant Becker that you were jumping the gun about the Vanderman girl because you just found out that she was at home all night. 
I'll check the rest of it. Okay, Mutt. First the cigarette butt, then the hairpin. Uh... Hey. What is it, Marlowe? What's with the hairpin? Why'd you say... Marlowe, quick, get the light. Someone's out front. Don't shoot it. Maybe the law. In skirts? Look, get in that car over there. It's a babe, and five will get you ten that she answers the name of Kay. Oh, that jerk's going to be a Lulu to protect. Yeah. Well, we better go in Hey, the hairpin you dropped into your pocket, Marlowe. What's so special about it? Oh, nothing. It was just a hunch I had. Forget it. Marlowe, I want to see it. Okay. Here. Get a good look! (laughs) Partner... a fast 20-minute drive back out to Bel Air and the Panaman place. All the way, I worried hard that the hunch I was playing was right and that I was going to be too late to do anything about it. When I was there, parked halfway up the pebble driveway out of my car and running toward the fluorescent light and the sound of a woman's voice that filtered through the heavy iron mesh over an air vent in the windowless target range, I slowed to a walk, switched the 45 from pocket to right hand, and then I moved up to where I could both see and hear. Kay Bannerman was huddled in a far corner, her eyes crowded with fear and riveted on the dainty but lethal twenty-two automatic that Cliff Lace's murderer pointed straight at her head. Estelle Neely had her back to me, but with the grill that was designed to stop bullets between us, there was nothing I could do. You've got to listen to me. Please listen before you do anything crazy. I swear, I, I, I never knew that Boyce was married. I, I'd never have gone with him if I'd known. You're a liar. No, it's the truth, I tell you. It started like the others, fun and no questions asked, but then... I fell in love and never occurred to me that he might have been married. Stop it! I don't want to hear anymore. I've already killed once for Boyce, the guy I turned into the police for something he did a month ago. You turned your own husband over? I did that so they'd put him away out of your reach. You'd never wait for him. You'd go your own merry, merry way a week after he was in jail. Boyce would be glad to come back to me after five years of living in a cage like an animal. And he'd never suspect that I was the one who informed. I hired a private detective, Mutt Pongo. And made sure that he knew I never even suspected that Boyce could have anything to do with another woman. Then Boyce would never realize it was you who turned him in. Because you had no motive. My Pomeroy would be your witness to that. I killed Cliff Lace because he traced me from Pomeroy. And then found out that I was the one who told the police about Boyce. He would have blackmailed me forever. And I'm not sorry. Nor will I be when I kill you. Now sit down, Miss Vanneman. And listen carefully. I couldn't shoot, and I knew that it would be disastrous to yell, but I had to do something in a hurry. I moved up quietly to the door. It was locked. That only left one chance, the skylight on the roof. The building was low, and a lawn chair nearby was all the help I needed. When I was up and over to the skylight, there was glass and no mesh underneath. I still hadn't made it, because from that angle I could see Kay. But only here, Estelle. Oh, now you know just what kind of a woman is going to kill you. But why me? I told you... I don't care what you told me! It was you, young and beautiful, that started all this. All this that's almost over now because the other detective, that Marlowe, knows that I killed Lace. He found a hairpin there. I saw him from the window. I saw him pick up the hairpin, Miss Van. No, stay back. The black hairpin that couldn't possibly belong to a blonde like you. The hairpin that said Marlowe knows that I killed Lace. So I'm through, and I know it. But before they get me up... My... My hand, it... Marlowe, is she dead? No, just out. Well, fireball, any appropriate wisecracks? Wisecrack? 
Uh, not for quite a while, Marlowe. I'm too scared. Well, it was the usual hour and a half of questions and answers with client, followed by the same questions and answers with police before I finally closed the door on Enoch Vanneman's marble halls and started down past the manicured shrubbery to where I'd left my car. Outside, the night was cold and clear. As I walked, I looked up at the vastness overhead and wondered. Wondered why I had the kind of job that made me no more than houseboy with gun for a rich guy with a badly spoiled niece. But I stopped wondering when I was at my car and no longer alone. I just wanted to say thanks before you left, Phil. I, I'm going to do my best to stay out of trouble from here on out. You know why? No, why? Because I want to be good enough for the right guy who may come along someday. A guy like you, I mean. Oh? Thanks, Phil. <sighs> I'm very grateful. Yes, well, <clears throat> my job's all right, nine times out of ten. The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character, star Gerald Moore are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald and are written for radio by Robert Mitchell and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were G.B. Hunter, Jay Novello, Olive Deering, Ralph Moody, Tony Barrett, and Charles Russell. The special music is composed and conducted by Richard Arant. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... It happened in a place called Bay City where I was unwelcome to a fat fry cook with a secret and a dapper gambler who smoked oversized cigarettes. But where to the long arm of the law? I was poisoned. Philip Marlowe has a new night, ladies and gentlemen, Tuesdays. Yes, starting February 7th, The Adventures of Philip Marlowe will be heard every Tuesday night at 9.30 Eastern Standard Time. Be sure and listen. Remember, Tuesday night, Marlowe night. And one week from tonight, at this time, you'll find one of your favorite radio families, the Goldbergs. Yes, Molly, Jake, Sammy, Rosie, and all their friends are moving from Friday nights on CBS to Saturdays, starting next Saturday. This is Roy Rowan speaking. Stay tuned now for Gangbusters, which follows on most of these same CBS stations. This is CBS, where the Goldbergs and Arthur Godfrey's Digest will now be heard every Saturday night, the Columbia Broadcasting System. That's The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, starring Gerald Moore in The Hairpin Turn from January 28, 1950. Also in the cast, Jay Novello, Charles Russell, Tony Barrett, Olive Deering, and Ralph Moody has heard over CBS. 
Stick around, I'll give you our lineup for episode 87 of the Classic Radio Theater after this short break. Next time on episode 87 of the Classic Radio Theater brought to you by the Bradford Exchange, we'll hear two comedy episodes of The Halls of Ivy starring Ronald and Bonita Coleman, so don't miss it. To reach me and to learn more about the Classic Radio Club, visit ClassicRadioClub.com. Be sure to tune into our next show and make sure to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts to never miss an episode. Thanks for listening.